You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So how do you plant a successful garden? I don't know if you've been by Home Depot or Lowe's these past few weeks. You see the garden centers are teeming with people. Everyone's getting stuff to plant their gardens. Just out of curiosity, where are my gardeners in the room? I know Phil. Yeah, Danielle. Okay. So I'm not a great gardener, but I know a couple of things. Whether it's plants or flowers or fruits and vegetables, I know there's some basic things that you have to get right. First, you've got to clear the area for the garden. You've got to dedicate a certain spot that that's going to be the garden. And then you go and you break up the soil, remove any stones, and make sure the soil has good consistency. Maybe you want to add some topsoil into your mix. And then you decide what you're going to plant, and you plant it, and you've got to water it regularly. But every gardener knows that at this point your work isn't finished. In a lot of ways, you don't have the liberty to just walk away and say, I planted a garden. In fact, your work has really just begun. Because we live in a post-Genesis 3 kind of world, thorns and thistles are inevitable. Weeds will almost immediately take to your well-groomed soil to choke out the vitality of your flowers. Pests will come and invade your garden and eat away at your harvest. Hot days like today will scorch your plants. High winds can knock your garden down. In fact, we all know that gardens need frequent attention if they're going to thrive. You might say it like this. The decision to plant a garden is simultaneously a decision to nurture a garden. The two go hand in hand. And so it is with a successful, healthy, God-honoring marriage. The decision to be married is simultaneously a decision to nurture that marriage. You can't simply get married, then sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. When you get married, the work has really just begun. On that day when a husband and a wife say, I do, almost immediately weeds of conflict and selfishness and impatience settle in. Pests of Pride and anger and bitterness seek to eat away at the harvest. Hot days of control and self-righteousness and unforgiveness choke out the life of a marriage. Paul David Tripp writes, daily attention is needed because every person in a relationship brings something dangerous and destructive into that relationship. Something that is antisocial at its core. And the Bible names this thing sin. As long as sin lives in us, it has the power to wreak havoc on our relationships. So we can't neglect the daily nurture they need. A good relationship is a good relationship because the people in that relationship never quit working on the relationship. See what he's saying there? One of the most dangerous threats to any relationship, and I think especially for marriages, is to neglect the work of nurturing and cultivation. This morning as Peter turns to the topic of marriage, he addresses wives and husbands. 
Now, I, I want us to take a step back and remember the larger context. This isn't a random part of his letter. He's not been talking about some other things and he says, oh yeah, by the way, I've got a bone to pick with husbands and wives. That's not, that's not what he's doing. See, Peter is helping first century Christians figure out how to live with this tension as citizens of the kingdom of God, while at the same time living as exiles under the rule and reign of the Roman Empire. He's teaching them, how do you live in the world but not be of the world? And he's, and he's started to unpack there's going to be differences in the way that you live. And, it, and the way that you live matters. Such that the way you live actually becomes a powerful apologetic for the gospel. You just got to put yourself in that first century context as this new religion in their eyes is, is, is bursting on the scene. Everyone's looking around at these Christians. And they want to discredit them. There's all kinds of rumors and, 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 and attacks happening against uh, Christianity at this time. And, and, Paul, and Peter's saying, listen, the way you live matters. The world is watching. And if we can live in a way as respectful citizens of the Roman Empire and yet as different citizens who live according to the values, and kingdoms, uh, the values of the kingdom of God, people are going to start to take notice. And so he started to look at different spheres of life. Last week we talked about how it is that elect exiles relate to their government and other authorities in the public sphere. And now that he's covered the public sphere, he, he, he switches into the private sector. He's looking at the home and he's trying to help husbands and wives figure out how do you relate to one another? How can you nurture their marriage? This section is what um, scholars call a household code. You'll see a lot of these come up in the New Testament. You see them in several different New Testament epistles. There's one in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through uh, chapter 6, verse 9. You'll see one in Colossians chapter 3. You'll see one in Titus chapter 2. And in fact, these are very, very common in the ancient world. Just like today, you might think of we have parenting and marriage books out there that, that fill the shelves and, 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 and the Amazon um, categories. There's people who are writing about how do husbands and wives relate to one another? How do you parent? And so the New Testament's no different. They speak into one of the most common and foundational institutions that God has established. And Peter is saying, we have to think about that too. And because the gospel is our new reality, it has implications for our homes. Now let me state right at the beginning. You probably had some of these thoughts as you were hearing the scriptures read that this passage is wildly unpopular in our day. That might be the most understating thing I'll say today. There are people who would wish that this chapter, these seven verses, were just ripped out of the Bible altogether. Maybe like... Uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson did with an exacto knife. And just, you know, they like verse where it goes in verse 8, but just those, those seven verses, let's just cut that out. Be like it was never there. And I think our passage with this problem is twofold. There's probably others, but these are the two biggest ones. For starters, I think this passage is misunderstood and has been used in terrible ways to subjugate and sideline women. And that's... Uh, not only a disservice to the scriptures, but it's outright dishonoring to our women. And second, I think we're conditioned by our culture to be suspicious of the Bible's teaching on masculinity and femininity, 
on marriage and how to structure the home. And so with uh, some of the abuses and misunderstandings of the text and with uh, the cultural climate that we live in, with that suspicion, we just often obscure the plain reading of the text because it's out of alignment with what we've learned from our culture. And maybe one of the most powerful things we can ever do is just simply ask the question. When we come to the scriptures and we feel a tension, just ask why. Why do I feel that tension? Where I feel this suspicion, where I feel this angst, maybe ask where did I learn that from? If I feel like the, 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 the things I think are good, true, and beautiful, and they come in contradiction with the scriptures, to ask, well, where did I learn that in the first place? Did I learn that from a deep study of scripture? Or is it that I've, just, I've been just drinking the water of the culture that I live in? So my goal this morning is to walk through 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, and help explain what it is saying and what it's not saying with a commitment to teach, what, uh, with a commitment not to teach what, what aligns with our culture or what makes sense to us, but to teach what is faithful to the Bible. Remember, we don't come to the scriptures democratically. I love being American. I love that we live in a representational democracy, but that's not how we should view the scriptures. We don't uh, vote on individual issues on how we're going to take this or that. Jesus is Lord and his word is final, irrespective of if I like it or not. And not only that, but because his word is good, true, and beautiful, if we structure our lives around his word, guess what? It will ultimately lead to our greatest thriving and flourishing. So my hope is that this morning... Whatever disbelief or whatever suspicions you might have on 1 Peter chapter 3, let's just suspend those for just a moment. Maybe let's just take a breath and see what Peter has to say. Come with an open mind and a receptive heart. And let's lean into this passage this morning. Let's not cut it out of our lives and pretend like it's not there. Because God in his sovereignty and his goodness and kindness wants us to know what Peter has to say here so that we can better understand our roles and responsibilities in marriage so that we can nurture and cultivate our marriages for the good of our homes and the glory of Christ. So our passage has two main movements this morning. First, he's going to address wives and then he's going to address husbands. And to the women, to the wives, Peter has three basic things he wants to say. The first, he calls wives, if you're taking notes, here's our outline for today. The first thing he wants to say to wives, he calls them to a humble submission, not control. Humble submission, not control. Second, he calls wives to pursue imperishable beauty, not vanity. To pursue imperishable beauty, not vanity. And third, he calls wives to hopeful faith, not fear. Hopeful faith, not fear. And to the men, Peter has three things as well to say. First, he calls husbands to an intentional pursuit, not, not neglect. As it relates to our wives, he calls us to intentional pursuit, not neglect. Second, he calls husbands to an elevating kind of honor, not domineering. He calls husbands to an elevating honor, not domineering. And third, he calls husbands to a prayerful reliance, not independence. Husbands are to have a prayerful reliance, not independence. Well, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's jump right in. Verse 1, 
Here again, the word of the Lord. Peter says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now that first word that you see in, the, in chapter 1, like, in, in verse 1, likewise, is really important. We see it at the beginning in Peter's address to wives. We'll see it again in his address to husbands. And it links this section of wives and husbands with the whole section on submission and authority. If you go back to last week's sermon, we talked about how all authority is a derivative authority. Here's what that means. That God is the only one who has inherent self-derived authority. And so any other authority that is here on earth is a derivative one. It's it's gaining its authority from the ultimate authority. God has established institutions and structures for society. And he delegates, dispenses some of his authority for the good of those under it. And ultimately, all these derivative authorities are serving his purposes. Even when we can't see it, even when we can't understand it, even when we go, I don't understand why or how God could be using that authority for his purposes. I promise you, when all is said and done, when we know what God knows, when we see what God sees, and we have the fullest picture, we'll look back and go, oh, I see that now. And so God has established several different authority structures. In one sense, every single person is under the authority of God. Whether they acknowledge that authority or not, every single person is under uh, the authority of God. We don't govern ourselves. And as Christians, we're to be ruled by the Spirit of God and live our lives in glad submission to God's rule and reign. So in one sense, submission is for everybody. Everybody submits to the Spirit of God. The state The state is given authority to provide law and order so that societies can thrive and flourish. We saw that last week. The church is also uh, under authority structure. The church itself is under the authority of Jesus Christ. And then the church is to be led by godly elders who teach and equip the saints for the work of ministry. And likewise, in this passage, we see that God has established a structure for the home where husbands are to lead their families as the head of the home, and together, husband and wives have authority to rule over their children. Now, obviously, when we talk about authority and submission, problems arise in all of these different spheres because sin enters in and brings corruption. And it happens on both ends, right? Those in authority don't acknowledge that their power and authority is a gift from God. They abuse that power. They let it go to their heads. They neglect the care of those they're supposed to provide uh, under their leadership, right? So God has given them authority not to domineer, but but to care for and to serve those underneath their authority. And oftentimes we see this playing out all over uh, world governments where uh, uh, people in power abuse it. And they subjugate and domineer over people. We also see it on the other side that those under authority, even if it's a good authority, just don't like authority. And there's this temptation to rebel over the authorities that God places in their life. And that's why at the center of this whole section, going back to what we started last week, And into this passage here, at the center of this whole section is Jesus Christ. 
Did you notice that last week? We ended with this whole beautiful section on, on Jesus, and now we go into this other section. In, in, the way, in the Hebrew mind, you put the most important thing at the center, and at the center of this whole passage is Jesus Christ. Let me remind you what Peter said. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. He's riffing on Isaiah 53 here. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. If at any point, Peter's basically saying, you're having a hard time living under, uh, living out what it means to be a person in the kingdom of God. He says, just keep looking back to Jesus. If you find yourself underneath an unjust authority, look back to Jesus. He was the truly innocent sufferer. And he suffered unjustly. And look how he lived. That word example, we talked about it last week, where it says Jesus, uh, the way he lived and suffered, left you as an example. We talked about how that Greek word was a word used in grade school education. It was a word that uh, would refer to when a kid is learning their alphabet. You give them example letters. And from an early age, you teach them how to trace it with their fingers, right? So that they learn how to write their alphabet correctly. And Peter says, Jesus is like that. He, he, he is like that example letter for how to live your life. Jesus is the suffering servant whose very life is an example for us to trace. And so Peter's saying, listen, you just need to set your expectations for suffering. You shouldn't consider it strange. You should expect that oftentimes in our submission to authorities, it will involve suffering and injustice. And Peter tells us, follow in the footsteps of Jesus who entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now with all that context, Peter addresses wives and tells them to be subject or to submit to their own husbands. Now just saying that word, hearing that word often makes us cringe it's okay to admit that but you can't get around it it's right there it's plain i promise you it's not one of those if i well what if i look it up in the greek does it still mean that it still means that okay you can't get around it the scriptures are clear from the very beginning god has intended for husbands to be the head of the home and that necessarily involves a wife's submission to her husband's leadership this isn't a one-off passage you see it in ephesians chapter 5 Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Underline that in your Bible, as to the Lord, that's important. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. What Paul's saying there is a man is to exercise Christ-like leadership in his home, and his wife has a, a, a complementary uh, uh, role in joyfully submitting to him. And it, it, his leadership is to be a tangible expression of his devotion to Christ. And her submission is to be an expression of her submission to Christ. Did you see that phrase, as to the Lord? 
He said, wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. In other words, he's saying your submission to your husband is really ultimately a submission to the Lord. I tell my kids all the time, God has established mom and dad as, as authorities in this home. And so when we talk about honoring the Lord with your life, one of the primary ways at this point in your life you do that is, is by honoring and, and, and serving and obeying your mom and dad. And in doing so, you're honoring and serving the Lord. I tell them all the time, we didn't appoint ourselves authorities in your life. God did that. It's a derivative authority. So we're accountable to him, and you're accountable to us as you're accountable to him. Again, Paul wants us to be clear that ultimately, in any realm you're talking about where you're called to submit, that your submission is to the Lord, because ultimately he's the one who has delegated authority. Now you might say, well, pastor, you don't know my husband. He doesn't deserve my submission. That may very well be true. We can talk about that. And we can talk about where there needs to be improvement. But ultimately, that's not the, 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 the basis or foundation of your submission. Jesus is the basis of your submission. As to the Lord Jesus Christ. So your husband may not deserve your submission, but Jesus certainly does. Now often, we want to dismiss these passages as irrelevant or just these culturally conditioned vestiges of patriarchy. But friends, that sentiment, if you feel it, this is just where I have to, to speak true and plain to you. That sentiment is more informed by second and third wave feminism than it is by the Bible. The ordering of the home goes all the way back to Genesis and God's creation order. See, God's design, his intention, the way he's established it, it's not arbitrary. It's not like God just flipped a coin and said, either way this goes, that's who's going to be the head of the home. It's not, God does nothing arbitrarily. The design of the home is also not a result of the fall. This all comes before the fall as God creates Adam and Eve. And we did a whole sermon series on the book of Genesis, so I'm not going to unpack all of that today. But before the fall, God creates Adam and Eve, and they are both created equal in dignity and value and worth. And that equality and dignity and worth comes from the fact that they're made in God's image. Again, our worth is a derivative one. We have worth and dignity and value because God has worth and dignity and value, and he has put that in us. And both are given, both the man and the woman are given the mandate to be fruitful, multiply, subdue, and fill the earth. God gives that to both men and women because both are needed to fulfill this huge and beautiful God-given mandate. Man can't do it on his own. Woman can't do it on his own. And he needs man and woman, male and female, created in his image to fulfill the creation mandate. At the same time, there are differences between men and women. And in our cultural moment, the temptation is to want to flatten those that, so, such that there are no differences between men and women. And we know deep down on our souls that that is, a, uh, that is exchanging the tr truth of God for a lie. In the home, God has provided a structure to the marriage relationship with husbands serving as the leader of the home. Now let me also say, this passage has nothing to do with the workplace or government or society. This is, this is speci uh, specifically speaking about the home. This passage is also speaking about husbands and wives. So um, the, the, the wives are, or women are not subject to all men. That's not what Peter is saying. 
This passage is specifically speaking about the home. Let me also say that wives are not to be subject to their husbands because they're inferior. That's also been a a way that this passage has been abused in the past. That couldn't be further for the truth. There's no hint of inferiority in this passage. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Later in the passage, Peter is going to specifically speak of the equality of women as co-heirs of the grace of life. See, roles and responsibilities do not imply inequality or inferiority. Difference does not mean inferior or less important. God has created masculinity and femininity for different purposes. And they're glorious and beautiful in their own right. One is not better or worse than the other. And together, when we're walking in our masculinity and in our femininity, together, those lead to the flourishing and thriving of the home. Now, you'll notice in each one of these directives, he's, he's, he's implicitly speaking to a temptation. The temptation here for humble submission is to reject that for control. In fact, every instruction in this passage, you'll see there's a general sin tendency and proclivity that he's going to speak into. And this primal temptation goes back to the fall in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, if you go back there and look in Genesis chapter 3, you'll see that God tells Eve and all future women that one of the primary ways that the curse of sin will play out, not the only way, just but a primary way, is in your callings as mothers and wives. Remember what he said in 3.16. To the woman, this is God speaking, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, And in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This is both a reality of how the curse of sin will tempt women and a warning to do everything we can to overcome it. He's saying it's going to play out like this. And because I'm telling you it's going to play out like this, it's a warning. The curse of sin will tempt women to exchange humble submission for manipulation and control. And also in this passage, we see there will be a temptation for husbands to exchange their strong, self-giving leadership into domineering tyranny. He's saying, listen, when sin plays itself out, it's going to wreak havoc on this most primary and basic relationship. And Peter is saying, wives, because of the power of the gospel, because you have been set free in Christ from sin, you can reject that impulse towards control and embrace your calling to respect your husbands. You can honor him, follow him, trust him. You can delight in his strength and be his greatest advocate. Now again, I feel like in these passages there's so many caveats I have to add so that we don't take it one, the wrong way. This does not mean, First Peter is not saying submit to abuse and follow your husband into sin and foolishness. That is not what this passage is saying. Because remember, your submission is first and foremost unto the Lord. So if your husband says, hey, let's go do something sinful, you say, I can't do that. This is where I'm submitting to the Lord, not to you. And let me just say this. We have to use discernment and wisdom as we apply these principles to the particulars of our lives. If you find yourself today as a woman, as a wife, in an abusive relationship, hear me, please get help. This is not a passage that says you have to continue in this, that you have to submit to this. 
I know that just saying those very words, please get help, is asking you to do a very difficult thing. You can talk to a pastor. You can talk to another woman in this church. Call the police. I know it's scary to ask for help, but please get help. With that said, we can't miss what Peter is calling wives who are loving Christ and trying to honor him with their lives. That he's calling them to embrace humble submission, not control. And in this passage in particular, Peter says that wives are to be subject to their husbands, even if their husband is not a believer. In fact, just imagine what's happening at this cultural moment. Many women are coming to faith in Jesus, and they had to navigate what it means to be a faithful Christian while at the same time living in a pagan home. At this time, there were cultural expectations that a wife would adopt her husband's gods. Listen to a leading voice on marriage in Greco-Roman culture at this time. In, uh, his name is Plutarch. His volume is called Advice, chapter 140.19. He says, A wife ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are first and most important friends. Wherefore, it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in and to shut the front door tight upon all strange rituals and outlandish superstitions. So this guy would not have been popular in our time. Not only were women expected to adopt her husband's gods, they weren't even supposed to have friends outside of her husband's circle of friends. It was very controlling, very manipulative. And so in one sense, if you read Peter in light of this is the cultural climate of his day, what Peter is saying is incredibly subversive and progressive according to the culture of his day. He is elevating the dignity of a woman to say she has a right to worship the Lord Jesus Christ regardless of if her husband does. And she can have friends in her own Christian community. And yet Peter's saying there's going to be a tension there because she needs to do so in a way that honors her husband. The hope is that her very life becomes a powerful apologetic for the gospel. As she lives her life, her conduct begins to testify to the truth, goodness, and beauty of Christ. And the hope is that in time, as he sees the gospel working its way in and through her life, natural conversations about the gospel will ensue with the hope that he too will come to faith in Jesus. Margaret and Andreas Kostenberger write, the idea of a wife submitting without a word, and what they mean with, without a word is, is, is going back to that verse, that uh, a, a wife's conduct will win her husband without a word. The idea of a wife submitting without a word is certainly not prohibiting the wife from sharing the gospel with her husband, but is drawing attention to the persuasive power of a life li uh, lived in, go in godliness and submission to God and in submission and respect for the husband. So Peter is not saying here that a wife married to an unbelieving husband should never use words. Rather, that her husband won't be won primarily by his wife's words, but by her respectful, submissive, godly behavior. As we tend to the cultivation of our marriages, the first thing Peter wants us to see is wives are called to a humble submission, not control. Now second, wives are called to imperishable beauty, not vanity. Look at verse 3. 
Peter says, do not let the, uh, your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person in the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now Peter moves to, the, to this next topic, and, and he's speaking into a temptation towards vanity and external beauty, over and above the cultivation of inner, enduring, imperishable beauty. Now, Peter's not giving an absolute prohibition against physical beauty or jewelry or nice clothes or hairstyles. But what he is saying is that the physical external beauties are inherently fleeting. They, they fade away. And so what Peter is saying, give your best time and your best attention towards the cultivation of inner beauty in your spiritual life. In other words, he's saying, where is the center of your identity? Is it on your outward appearance or is it centered on Christ? Now think of that word adorn. What does that word mean, to adorn something? Well, it means to enhance it. It means to beautify it. It means to embellish it. And the reality is, is that we tend to adorn the things that we treasure. And the things that we treasure reveal what we value most, what we ultimately hold as uh, things to be worshipped. And so what Peter is saying, that there's a temptation for women, not exclusively for women, because men can do this too, but particularly for women, to treasure and value their physical appearance and to want to adorn that physical appearance with uh, external fleeting things. And he's saying, we have to see reality here, that eventually all these things fade away. But there is something that will not fade. Flowers bloom and their glory lasts for a moment, but eventually spring gives way to winter. But Peter's saying there's a kind of beauty that never fades. He says there's a kind of imperishable beauty that's well worth your investment. And he's saying it's the cultivation of your heart and a gentle and quiet spirit. Now what does Peter mean? Is Peter trying to silence women here? Is he telling them to be quiet? That's not really what that word means. Gentleness here does not imply weakness. Rather, gentleness replies, uh, refers to self-restraint. A uh, long time ago, a, a pastor was unpacking this word, and he was, like, he was talking about when he would wrestle with his children. He clearly had the power over them. He, he was stronger than them, but, but he's being gentle with them. He has the power, but he's, he's restraining that power. That's what gentleness is. It's an ability to be precise and thoughtful with your actions and movements. The word for quiet here doesn't mean silence. It means well-ordered. You could, you could even translate this as peace. In other words, he's saying without turmoil. Think of the home. It needs to be a, a place of peace and rest, not turmoil. So if we put that together, Peter is saying wives should cultivate the, the inner imperishable beauty of a heart that's centered on Jesus, that knows how to use her strengths and use her gifts in a well-ordered, precise, and thoughtful way as you submit to the leadership of your husband. That's good advice. That's good advice. As we attend to our marriages, Peter is saying, spend your time cultivating the inner heart, cultivating a, a gentle and quiet spirit to pursue imperishable beauty, not vanity. And finally, he says, wives are called to a hopeful faith, not fear. Look at the last two verses in this section. Peter says, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. 
You are her children if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Here Peter encourages wives that they are not alone in this calling. Many faithful players have gone before them. And he gives Sarah, Abraham's wife, as an example. Now if you remember again from our study of Genesis, Abraham was not a great husband. Right? He had a lot of fatal flaws. And we saw time and time again that he put Sarah in really dangerous situations. And yet, Peter says, Sarah submitted to him and leaned, to her, and leaned into her faith. Not perfectly, but faithfully. And Peter says, wives, hope in God and lean into faith. And when you do, you, you, you put yourself in this line of faithful women who've gone before. He says, lean into that faith, not fear. And as you do, you become part of that same legacy that stretches all the way back to the days of Abraham and Sarah. And then he says something remarkable. He acknowledges that the call to submission in a sinful world is frightening. And I'll be honest with you, as I've read this passage many times, I've overlooked that statement. Just natural as you're reading the Bible to highlight some things and not others. But in particular, this week as I was studying, that phrase stood with me. He says, if you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. I think it's incredibly pastoral and a plain acknowledgement that dignifies women. He's saying, listen, I know it can be a frightening thing to submit your body to the rigors of motherhood. It's a scary and hellish thing even to submit to a husband who isn't submitted to the Lord. And I know it seems counterintuitive and like a wasted opportunity to, to nurture these invisible qualities of the heart when the world around you says to use your external beauty for power. I know it seems out of step with our culture. No, it seems backwards in our culture to even speak of submission to a husband. And it can be very difficult and frightening to submit to weak and sinful husbands who don't lead well and in their passivity bring uncertainty and pain. And Peter says, I see you and I hear you. And I just want to acknowledge that can be a frightening thing. But instead of leaning into that fear, what does Peter say? He calls wives to lean into faith, to hope in God, and like Jesus, entrust themselves to him who judges justly. Wives, Peter has three things for you to consider this morning as it relates to the order and nurture and cultivation of your home. Humble submission, not control. Imperishable beauty, not vanity. And a hopeful faith, not fear. You're going to have to spend time praying and asking the Lord where in those three things that the Spirit might be um, offering instruction Offering correction and how you can apply that into your home. But for now, we need to turn to husbands. The first part of verse 7. Peter says, husbands are called to intentional pursuit, not neglect. Verse 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, just like he did with wives, Peter gives a command with a view towards a general proclivity towards sin. See, men will have a proclivity to neglect their wives and give up this intentional pursuit of knowing them. They'll, they'll, they'll be uh, passive. They'll abdicate their 
uh, their proactivity in marriage. That's what Peter says. Literally translated from the Greek, this verse reads this. Husbands, live with your wives according to knowledge. When we see live with your wives in an understanding way, if you were to translate that literally, it's live with your wives according to knowledge. Now in the Bible, anytime the word knowledge is used in conjunction with a relationship, it suggests something much deeper than intellectual facts. In fact, to know someone relationally in the Bible speaks of intimacy. And so when Peter exhorts husbands to live with their wives according to knowledge, what he's saying is uh, make careful study of her. Learn her. Get to know what she loves. Get to know how she receives loves. Listen to her. You can't know things if you're always talking. You need to ask good questions. You need to hear and receive. The very idea of learning is a receiving kind of thing, isn't it? Pursue her, cherish her, live with her according to all of that knowledge that you build up and learn over time. So as you gain all that knowledge, as you gain all that uh, uh, understanding of her, he's saying now live according to that. Do something with it. Don't just store it away in some back filing cabinet. It should actually change the way you live. This falls in line with Paul's teaching in Ephesians 5. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Nourish and cherish is Paul's way of getting at the same point. It's a call for husbands to pursue knowing their wives so that they can care for them and hold fast to them and honor them. And the reality is that men often fail in this intentional pursuit. They can sacrifice the pursuit of wives for other things. Maybe it's building a career or hobbies, sports, whatever it might be, the neglect. We can neglect the cultivation of our home because we've spent our best energies on cultivating something else. And Peter says, your wives deserve your best energy, your best time. We can forget that one of the greatest gifts that God gives a man outside of Christ is his wife. And we are to hold fast to her. So husbands, how are we doing at this? I'll be the first to admit I can grow better at this. the, the, The work is not finished. I need to do better. I need to ask more questions, not less. I need to schedule more date nights, not less. I need to pursue my wife with intentionality and give her my best time and attention so that I can live according to all of that knowledge. See, this is the life together that Peter talks about. See, marriage isn't about two people living together because it's cheaper and you can file your taxes together. It's not simply about the propagation of the human species. It's about building a life of joy together. And ultimately, Paul tells us it has an even bigger goal. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And Paul says this mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church. He's saying ultimately God's all about your joy and life together. But ultimately it's about pointing to Christ. And when we neglect the thoughtful pursuit of our wives, we relegate her to becoming something more of a roommate than a wife. And that 
does not honor the Lord. That's not how we show off the glory of the love of Christ. What Paul and Peter are saying is, we should be loving and attending and caring for our wives so much, in fact, that it shows off the same kind of way that Christ loves and cares for and nourishes the church. That's what's happening there. Peter is clear. Husbands, there must be an intentional pursuit of your wives. Do not neglect them. Next, he says that husbands are called to an elevating honor, not domineering. Look what he says next. Showing honor to the women as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Peter says, honor your wife. Now, what does it mean to honor someone? Well, it means to hold them in high esteem. It means to respect them. It means to give preference to them. That's what it means, to honor them. Now, what about that phrase, weaker vessel? I know the women love this phrase. I've never seen a woman tattoo weaker vessel. Not once. Now let's cover what it doesn't mean. Peter does not have in view weakness in terms of intelligence, capacity for leadership, or wisdom. Some of the greatest leaders and wisest people I know are women. Remember, this is the same Peter. We can forget sometimes that this is the same Peter who did ministry with Jesus all those years. You know who were mainstays in Jesus' ministry? Women. Very much involved. In fact, it was women who pretty much funded their ministry because like the main guys were poor fishermen. They served alongside Jesus and he dignified and honored women. I think it's one of the primary reasons why at the, at the initial spread of Christianity, most initial converts were women because Jesus just loved them and dignified them in ways that just weren't apparent in the culture around them. That's Peter. He learned it firsthand from Jesus. So he's not speaking about weakness in terms of leadership, wisdom, ability. It's not what he's talking about. I think what he has in mind are two realities. First, in general, women are weaker physically than men. Now, this doesn't mean women aren't strong. Of course they're strong. Women are incredibly strong. But their strength is not primarily in physicalities. Again, this is a generality. But we all know this to be true. To deny that is a, is de, a denial of straightforward reality. That's why we, we cringe to see um, a man beating a woman. That's why our culture is having a hard time figuring out what to do with this uh, 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 transgender thing in sports. Because clearly these, these, these men parading as women have more physical abilities. We know this to be true. Peter knows most Husbands can physically overpower their wives. And that's why Peter is saying, don't use your physical strength to your advantage over your wife. Rather, use that strength to show her honor. And second, I think he, he knows that women are in a weaker position in terms of authority, especially in their day. In a first century world, women had very little social standing and power. They were just one slight step above a slave. And if we read this verse in context, Peter has just spent six verses outlining the implications of a wife's submission to her husband. 
And Peter is just acknowledging that reality. That women are called to submit to their husband. And he's saying they're in a, in a weaker position in terms of authority. And he's saying, husbands, as the one in this God-given place of authority, do not use your positional strength to exploit and domineer your wife. Instead, use that power, use that position to show her honor. Use your authority to provide and protect so if we take both of those together, Peter is saying, give preference to your wife and use every bit of your God-given strength and position and power to provide and protect for her. And then Peter says, don't forget, women are co-heirs with you of the grace of life. So what does he do? He reaches down to that lower status that they had in the larger society and he elevates them. And in terms of salvation... In terms of prominence in God's kingdom, women are co-equal, co-heirs of the grace of life. So everything that Peter has said in chapter 1 about this incredible inheritance that's coming, you remember that from 1 Peter chapter 1? To an inheritance that is unfading, imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for you, being guarded by the Lord Jesus Christ. That inheritance, guess what? Both men and women have an equal share in that inheritance. So in a society that preferred and showed honor to men over women who gave only inheritances to sons, this was an incredibly huge statement. Peter's saying, listen, you may not get an inheritance from your father, but your father in heaven has an inheritance kept in heaven for you. And husbands, do not forget they are co-heirs of that grace with you. This would have been seen as progressive and literal and liberal. It would have been seen as taking conventional wisdom and practices and turning it upside down. So inherently, these verses condemn physical and sexual violence. It condemns demeaning verbal attacks. It condemns intimidation. It condemns this, this attitude in the home that is just chronically angry and rough. You can't show honor and be a cause for fear. Those two things just don't go together. You need to be a safe haven. And where we have failed here, husbands, look at me. We need to repent. Both to our wives and to the Lord. You need to acknowledge it. Don't sugarcoat it with vague generalities. You need to speak specifically to it. Ask for forgiveness. And pray to the Lord that he would give you a gentle, humble, and patient heart. And then make every spirit-driven, gospel-fueled effort to live in accordance with Peter's command. And if you need to get help, get it. I don't care how much it costs. I don't care how much time it takes. You will show honor to your wives. Use your God-given position, your God-given physical strength to elevate her, not subjugate her. Use your power to care for her, defend her, and do not domineer over her. Peter is clear. Husbands, we are to intentionally pursue our wives, not neglect them. We are to elevate them by honoring them. And finally, he calls husbands to prayerful reliance. 
This last phrase, he says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, this very instruction doesn't make any sense at all if we don't actually value prayer. You get that, right? If we're not praying, then no prayers could be hindered one way or the other. He's believing the best of us, brothers. He's assuming for the sake of argument that we believe in the power and efficacy of prayer. We believe that it's necessary. So let me ask you, are you praying for your home? Are you praying big, bold prayers for your family? Are you praying for your children's salvation? Are you praying for your wife's flourishing, her thriving? Are you praying for the fruitfulness of your home? Do you pray for your church, her leaders? Do you pray for your city, for your neighbors, for your coworkers? Brothers, if we're not praying, then what are we doing? We're relying on independence. We, we think we've got it. And that's precisely the sin that Peter is addressing here. Now watch what he does here. He says there's a direct correlation into how we treat our wives and the efficacy of our prayers. So he says, let's assume for the sake of argument you're praying. But if you're failing to pursue them and honor them, then Peter says our prayers will be hindered. Now why is that? It's because we're living lives of contradiction. Because on one hand, we're going to the Lord and saying, we need your help to answer our prayers. But on the other hand, we're rejecting the Lord's way for how to lead our homes. And he's saying, you can't go to the Lord with that kind of contradictory life. The Lord will discipline you and hinder your prayers. So what's the solution? First, if there's unrepentant sin in our life, especially in this case and how it relates to our home, we need to pray and ask forgiveness and repent and live accordance with his word. And when husbands are living out the gospel, we will take responsibility to lead our homes and to be men who are reliant on prayer. So once we've taken care of the hindering thing and repented and asked for forgiveness, then Peter says, rely on the Lord in prayer. Husbands, intentionally pursue your wives. Show them honor and be men of prayer. Friends, there's a lot to consider here this morning with just the depth and scope of this passage. We're going to have to spend more time than just this morning figuring out how do we apply it into the particulars of our lives. There's much for husbands and wives to consider. My hope is that this would open up some conversations in our homes. There's even just general principle for men and women. There's much in these verses that collide with our 21st century world. Where you feel the urge to cringe, my hope is that you would be slow to speak and quick to listen to the Spirit. Spend time in prayer asking the Lord if there's any ways where we've been, become more informed by the world than by Scripture. More culturally conditioned by the leading voices of our day than by the direction of the Spirit. Whatever the case, let's allow the spirit of the living God to help us understand, believe, and live out these verses. Let's pray.